Welcome to the Caring Greatly podcast, a podcast for leaders who seek to transform healthcare with humanity. Mr. Steve Forty served 23 years in the Army Special Forces, where his specialties included Special Forces Weapons Sergeant and Special Forces Intel Sergeant. He is a Level 1 sniper and attended Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab at DIA, as well as the Special Operations Planners course in Norfolk, Virginia. Mr. Forty earned a Bachelor's of Science in Nursing from Quinnipiac University, completed a critical care residency at Yale New Haven Hospital Systems, and holds a Bachelor of Science from Southern Connecticut State University. He has eight years of critical care and trauma nursing experience. In March of 2020, he was asked to join the team at the Hospital for Special Surgery as the Chief of Staff for Crisis Management as they transformed the entire hospital into a COVID-19 treatment center to do their part in the fight to save lives during the height of the pandemic crisis in New York City. As the crisis ebbed, he was asked to join the leadership team there as the Chief Wellness and Resiliency Officer. In this episode of Caring Greatly, Mr. Forty shares the science of autonomic downregulation as a focal point for individual well-being. While he's an advocate for system change, He believes that those in the healing professions also have a moral obligation to care for their personal well-being, given the critical nature of the work they do and the proven links between well-being and patient care outcomes. At Hospital for Special Surgery, Mr. Forty created a program that teaches the science behind autonomic downregulation, as well as simple practices such as sleep, breathwork, alcohol abstention, gratitude, and nutrition that support heart rate variability, a key measure of well-being. To date, more than 700 clinicians have completed the training. Mr. Steve Forty is a leader who cares greatly. Welcome, Mr. Forty. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So I want to start with your background as a Green Beret and a Special Forces sniper and the military research that informs your approach at Hospital for Special Surgery. Can you give us an overview of what operator syndrome is and and how allostatic load works? in terms of what it means for stress and well-being? Yeah, of course. Um, so, um, you know, as a Green Beret and, uh, you know, as a member of the special operations community and uh, sort of, I want to do recognize actually, uh, we're coming up on Veterans Day tomorrow and uh, I want to thank uh, all my uh, brothers and sisters who served in the armed forces. Um, you know, I always make the comment that uh, everything that might be decent about me right now is because of them and anything that needs work is in spite of their best efforts. So <laughs> I think that uh, it, it has certainly shaped um, my life in every single way and everything that I have, it can be tied directly back to it. Um, and it certainly has informed and shaped the approach to wellness uh, that I have personally and professionally as a chief wellness officer at HSS. Um you know, so to give a little bit of a historical context, you know, um, I, I think an argue, argument can be made and not diminishing anyone's service to the country. But if you look at from the onset of, um, you know, the kickoff of the Afghanistan war and then throughout leading up to the Iraq war and then, you know, into the conclusion of both, um, Green Berets did more than their fair share in the fight uh, in, in both of those conflicts. And, you um, the and and many did and many gave so much and we're talking about multiple deployments and even if you're not talking about deployments and time away from home you're talking about a you know operational training tempo and as the wars 
progressed and as time went on, probably around, and this is a bit anecdotal, but somewhere 2006, 2007, you know, you started to see the toll that that began taking on the force. And I saw personally with some of uh, my my uh, fellow teammates who had two and three and four deployments uh, at the 2009 year mark, you know, and uh, you saw the toll it was taking on them and their families. And um, there began to be a bit of a renaissance in the special operations community that I believe then sort of filtering down through the rest of the force, where they started to focus on recovery more than they started focusing on the, the, the war fighting aspect of things, or at least, you know, in parallel, they focused on those two things. And I want to say that uh, instead of saying focus, I guess I would say began to emphasize uh, that part of the war fighters picture. And um it began to yield results. Now, you know, when we look at the special operations community and, and as we look at the healthcare community, you have to begin to see that there are commonalities in both in terms of that piece of the emotional and physiologic load that this quote unquote operational tempo has on the individual. And you see it um, in, in everything from, you know, um, substance abuse and misuse, you see it in suicide, you see it in um, their physical health, hemoglobin A1C, CRP, all of these really important markers that point to people that are suffering from this, this load. Now we talk about allostatic load, there's amazing work that's been done by two individuals, uh, uh, Chris Frey and um, uh, Kirk Parsley, and they wrote a paper that was published, I, and I, I apologize for not having the, the actual document in front of me right now and being able to cite it appropriately, but it's easily Googleable. But if you look at it, they talked about this identification of a constellation of different, um, you know, maladies that come from being under high allostatic load. Now, to define allostatic load, it's the entirety of somebody's environment pressing down on them and the toll that that takes. All right. And it's a very important concept. So if you look at the military, it's not just the combat piece of it. It's the pre-deployment training. It's the time away from home. It's the stress from missing kids' lives and missing birthdays and even childbirths and all of these different things. It's that entirety of that stress in this industrial environment that, that weighs down. And measures need to be taken to offset that because if you get too far down the spectrum of, you know, allostatic overload, well, that's when you're looking at burnout. And it's in this burnt out state that a lot of the challenges happen. Now they affect you individually from a physiological perspective and they also affect your team or your work environment. And it usually shows up in terms of miscommunication, in terms of um, a cost to the culture of an organization, you know, and it's very damaging. So it's good that it was identified, we're addressing it and we can address it more. And that's speaking in the special operations community or in any high performing environment. Now, healthcare presents a unique challenge right? in, in the sense that the resources are limited, right? We can't mm -hmm. just throw an unlimited amount of money and resources at the problem. We can't compel people to do certain things that you can in the military. And whether that's a mental health check-in, whether it's prioritizing sleep or holding leaders accountable directly for the health of their force, um, that is a challenge in healthcare, and we need to find ways to circumnavigate that a bit by making room in the workplace and providing for the education of individuals so they can mitigate the impact on allostatic load or, they, or allostatic overload. They can mitigate the damage 
that that stressful environment, that high operational tempo causes to the force in the military and then the force of the provision of healthcare. Now, when I think about that, you know, I it's easy to turn to the the broader conversation and say a lot of people are saying, well, that that low, you know, while in the military, right, war is a terrible thing, but you certainly can't control the factors of war. But in healthcare, we're in a civilian time, and a lot of that environmental load is wholly potentially wholly unnecessary if we structured the system differently. And and you're talking about addressing that load at the individual level in many ways. Can you can you talk about that tension a little bit? Yeah. So um and I might even offer a little bit of pushback on that, right? Okay. So um if we pull back to like the 90,000 foot level, right? Like pull as far back as we possibly can when we can still see the whole provision of care piece. Okay. Um there is the inherent stress of a job where there's a loss of life. So we yeah. can't control that piece, right? We can't mm -hmm. control the challenges. I just had the absolute privilege of speaking at Memorial Sloan uh, Kettering yesterday and, you know, they're at the pediatric group there and, you know, they deal in like the, the cost of, uh, of children with cancer. I mean, I truly personally could not do that job sincerely as a mm. nurse in any capacity, right? Uh, I have so much admiration and respect for the, for those individuals. Um, so there are those intent, the, there are those elements of it that you don't have any vote on. You know, anytime you have an emergency room, you don't have a vote on what's coming through the door. Staffing causes a shift, an increase, right? Now you could say like, okay, we'll hire more staff, pay nurses more money, pay doctors more money, give more time off, all of those. But if we pull back far enough, there is certainly a nexus there where doing that and providing all that, there's an intersection that would make healthcare a losing financial proposition that would negatively impact everything from the quality of care, the continuum of care, uh, innovation, right? Like, so I don't know. There are absolutely things we could control, but there's so much that's beyond our control. Now, I'll say this, and this is again, anecdotal, but I've got a pretty good line of sight on these things. Um, very rarely, or at least in isolation, is it the combat, and this is actually not just anecdotal, but by the research, it's not combat and gunfights and things like that that actually really cause the post-traumatic stress or the allostatic overload that you're looking at. It's time away from family. It's deployments of unknown oh. duration. It's the amount of cubic square foot you're living in actually has been tied more to it. Um, it's uh, the a, a moral injury if you happen to unfortunately get a poor leader, you know, or um, possibly have a marriage go south. So there's all of these things that play a role uh, in it. That's not the obvious, you know, save it, saving Private Ryan picture of, you know, what we used to call shell shocked, you know, 50 right. years ago, forever years ago. It's the moral piece of this. It's the, is my work valuable? Is it appreciated? Is it seen? Do I have a sense of belonging? So if we shift from that in the military community where things maybe they're a little bit heightened, let's bring it into the context of healthcare. Well, if we know that a time determinant or a duration determinant is something that increases allostatic load. We've been on a COVID deployment for the 
last three plus years, not knowing right. what's going on. And a lot of organizations are still reeling financially or reeling staff wise. There's a fleet of the force, just like a decrease in retention in the military. Mm. Military recruiters are having a tough time making their numbers. We're having a tough time, and not we, but healthcare in general are having a tough time people keeping people in patient care and in healthcare. There's a migration to different fields that don't involve patient care within healthcare that people are tending to prefer right now in a lot of ways. So um, I don't know how much right now, or at least in the very near term, we could affect that industrial side of things, mm. which is why at HSS and where I'm sort of positioned right now and where I advise others to position themselves is what can we work on on the individual level on the things that no one has a vote on. And those are very simple techniques on how to live their life that you can increase your resilience and your well-being. You can improve your relationship, your intimacy, your connectedness in a way that no one else gets a vote on, where the emergency room door doesn't matter, where the, uh, you know, I have people always say sleep, sleep, sleep. Well, sure, but like people with children, their children get a vote on their sleep. People <laughs> right. with pets, their votes get a vote, right? But what can you control? And here's where I become the most unpopular guy in the room, which I, I work, right? <laughs> what can you control? You could control how much alcohol you consume. Right. right. If you finally got a day off on a Saturday and a Sunday, and you finally are able to get away from work a bit and take care for yourself. If you're looking at recovery, then alcohol is a horrible choice for your Friday and Saturday night. And we see that clinically in terms of wearables and biomarkers, right? In terms of heart rate variability, sleep depth and duration, right? So you do get a vote on whether or not you consume alcohol. We're all gonna breathe. So you get a vote on how well you breathe, right? Exercise. Generally speaking, you can get it in. I think we make a lot of excuses. Now, can you train for the marathon as a resident? No, probably ill-advised. But can you put exercise or activity, let's get away from exercise, healthy activity in a context throughout every day? Yeah. You could choose that level of intensity for activity where if you get four hours of sleep three nights in a row, you probably don't want to do a CrossFit class. But maybe a brisk walk in the woods with a pet or a loved one is probably a better strategy than a sweat angel on the floor at the gym, right? <laughs> so that's sort of the idea is what can we work on within ourselves until the rest of us get our acts together in a way, and I say that with a smile on my face, but the rest of us figure out this industrial financial component, right? Where we could start measuring allostatic load in real time and putting measures in place to mitigate it or creating time and space in the workplace to offset it. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I think, you know, you've hit, you've hit on a bunch of things, sleep, alcohol, exercise, breathing. Um, and, and you also talked about heart rate variability as, as part of the measure of this uh, allostatic load. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, what does it look like? How does it, how do you measure it? You know, what tools could people use if they want to track that as, and how does, how is it really an indicator of health for folks? Yeah. Um, so, and I want to apologize to any, uh, you know, neurologists or uh, <laughs> psychiatrists that are listening for my oversimplification of it. Um, but it's not wrong. And I stand by it and the research supports it. Right. So increased allostatic load in an environment will lead to an increased heightened state of awareness. It'll result in a triggering of the sympathetic nervous system or what we know is fight or flight or what we're starting to call fight, flight or freeze 
right? So we're looking at this, uh, you know, hyper vigilance in our lives and in our environment. Now, if we pull back in time and not distance, right? Look at how much stimulation, st uh, you know, stimulation there is in our environment right now. Let's just take brightness of our visual field. We know that brightness of the visual field matters when it comes to autonomic upregulation, right? Anyone that's walked down the Vegas Strip or walked through a casino, right? You find yourself at Times Square, table yep. at Bellagio, <laughs> or Times Square at 10 o'clock on a Friday night. Like yes. we know there's an upregulated sensation. Okay, we know there's an upregulated sensation in terms of proximity to individuals in our personal space. Okay, we know that right now, you and I, and you'll see me keep trying to push back, but I violate it constantly. There's a certain <laughs> amount of intimate space that we allow people into. Normally, under this space, and this is the, uh, it was a study that was done in the 1970s and 80s, there was this intimate space that was determined that's to be about 26, 28 inches. And that 26 to 28 inches is for like the baby we love and adore and our pet and our significant <laughs> other that we're intimate with, right? But yet we go on a Zoom call or a Teams call, <laughs> we invite 1,100 people into our most intimate space. Mm. So this brightness of our visual field, this distance to others is all very upregulating. And that's just talking about scrolling on Instagram and Zoom and Teams calls. And these are important technologies that enable us to do things. Oh, I would not Instagram. If it was me, I would outline Instagram and everybody would make my life a lot easier if everyone would toss their cell phones in the East River. Um, but we know those are just two items right there that are significantly upregulated. And it keeps us into this hypervigilant state or this autonomically upregulated state, this sympathetic state, this fight or flight state. Well, that has a physiological and a psychological consequence to it. Okay. We even see it among special operators when they did the research on operator syndrome with elevated hemoglobin A1C, which for, for mm. if anyone's non-clinical, you know, that's the marker of sort of like your pre-diabetic diabetic profile, the propensity to have diabetes. And it really talks about the compensatory, compensatory mechanisms of your body's ability to produce enough insulin that keeps your your blood sugar at a normal level again apologies to any endocrinologist that <laughs> oversimplifying it for but there is a reality to that so if you're in this hypervigilant state and there's an increased metabolic demand there's a consequence to that so we need to take proactive measures now why hrv hrv is the indirect measure well is that right? Yeah. So a direct measure would be an EEG or an MRI, right? Uh, of the amygdala, but, uh, or some type of real time, if you could ever track, a, you know, adrenaline or cortisol or, and other things in real time, like we can blood sugar, that would be a direct measure, but an indirect measure of how fight or flight you are is heart rate variability. It measures it in a different, a few different ways. One, you know, when you are physically fit and rested and capable, your heart rate is going to have variability. It's not going to be like a metronome. So let's call 60 beats a minute, right? It's not 60 beats a minute on the second. There's a plus or minus measured in milliseconds on both sides of that. And the more uh, variation there is in that, the more rested, recovered, and able to compensate for what's coming down the line for you. That's mm -hmm. an absolute fact. And with the advent of some of these new different technologies and wearables, we're able to monitor that. Um, I don't want to say in real time because it's not that accurate, but it certainly is very accurate in measuring over time and in critical times in your sleep, which is sort of looking for. So with these new technologies, it gives us a glimpse into how upregulated we are. 
right? And we should probably start making efforts to correlate how much allostatic load is in our environment and the impact that has on our recovery. And then we could start saying, well, what recovery techniques work for me? And for me, breath work. I mean, breath work doubles my heart rate variability, okay? Exercise does in a number of ways over time. One, as you exercise, you lower your resting heart rate, which mechanically leaves more room for a higher degree of variability. Right. So there's a lot of information to be gleaned. And even if you're like, listen, I'm not going to wear a, a, a wearable. So people say like, I know I need more sleep. I think that's a terrible strategy, but I support people in meeting them where they are. You can just take resting heart rate, mm. right? Because with the exception of something pathophysiologically wrong with you, right? Or, or something that's not functioning appropriately or a medication that's causing it, resting heart rate is a pretty good indicator of your overall health and your well-being. You know, so yeah. the strategy should be placed to be two things. How do we give the gift of decreasing allostatic load in an environment to enable people to positively affect their heart rate variability on their own? And that's the, the thing. So there's two lines of effort. How do we as an industry work on it on the industrial side? And then how do we provide people the goals and the, and the, and the mechanism on an individual basis to do it now, because it's not enough to wait for the 911 call for wellness, right? Like what, right. It's, it's just, it doesn't do anybody any good, right? right? So we need to speak out about the problems that are inherent in the system. And we need to equip them and say, until we get this fixed, until we understand the mechanisms by which we can improve this, we're gonna help you adapt with what you got where no one gets yeah. a yeah, and I think even if we created a perfect system, right, that there is going probably going to be another pandemic possibly in our lifetime, right? There's awesome. always something unexpected. As you said, it's an it's a it's a job role that deals with death, dying, loss, pain, suffering. Um, and so that ability to manage your resilience, which is not to say you don't start with a lot of it, right? Like I think that's a message that often people misconstrue when or even sometimes I think. Um, some leaders come at it in a way that that sounds punitive or or like okay. you're not doing your role. It's more of a, hey, you're you're in a role that that has high stress, some of which we need to remove, but some of which will always be there. So take care of yourself. Is that is that a good summary of the message? Uh, yes, it's a great summary, and I'm going to go a step further. Okay, mm -hmm. and I will say this to you. I would say it to myself constantly. If you're in any industry, all right, some industries it's more critical than others. There are certain injuries, indu uh, injuries, <laughs> there are certain industries where it becomes a moral obligation. Mm. Okay. Military, police, first responders, I would argue educators, healthcare mm. providers of any sort, physicians in particular, nurses in particular, right? Like all of these roles it then crosses into this threshold of a moral obligation for self-care. Yeah. Part of what your job description is for you, for your patients, and for your family is that you take care of yourself. Now, there's an analogy everybody uses that I really don't like at all, and it's this uh, put your oxygen mask on yourself on the plane, whatever. Right. I, I, I despise that, and I get it. It's like, <laughs> it just, but it's like... It's a hell of a thing to say right. to people that have dedicated their entire life to service to others, right? And then you're going to just say like, well, you have to take care of yourself first. You know, intellectually, we're just like, 
or I can hold my breath for 60 seconds, <laughs> put it on my kid. And then like, that's who we are. You know what I mean? Like, right, like, right. And it almost like gives a negative connotation where it's like, hey, stop being selfish and take care of yourself. Right. So the very thing we ask of them to join the profession in the first place of any service archetypal person is the thing that we're not like holding over them. I'm like, not, not, not take care of yourself. <laughs> like, it's really a hell of a thing to say, you know? Um, so I, I like to say like, you know, train yourself to simultaneously put both of yours on, right. <laughs> or maybe, maybe take a yeah. breath off of it and then put it on the person you care about and then find yours. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a better message because it becomes one of this, and I'm going to quote uh, Brian Ferguson, who uh, founded a company called Arena Labs, uh, who's a, a, a friend and an innovator in this space, where, you know, it needs to shift from this, and we agree on this, and many do, it needs to shift from this sort of like broken message of healthcare, this broken system of whatever this thing is, this allostatic overload, to an aspirational narrative. How do we keep you in the profession longer? How do we keep you better? How do we keep you performing at your best? How do we mitigate potential for errors? And when it becomes an aspirational narrative, instead of, oh, poor you or poor me, right? And this isn't say to be unsympathetic to the incredible challenges of healthcare. I remember as a RN, I um, spent uh, about two months or three months in the burn unit at Bridgeport, and I cried in the parking lot every other night because you would see these pediatric burns come in, and it was just heartbreaking, and it wasn't for me. You know, we have to recognize the horror of the profession, you know, and um, I, I kind of lost my train of thought where I was going with it, but these are challenging places. But if we shift to an aspirational narrative where it's like, how do we get you to perform with us? You know, I talk about a few different things at HSS when we talk about wellness. And I, I, I um, you know, we all talk about lifespan, right? And we all want to live a long life, but there's yeah. a caveat to that, right? Like, health, do we want to live a long span? life? Yeah. <laughs> in vain, right? Like, you know, like, do you want to live a really long life with significant <laughs> pain in your life, right? right? No, I don't personally. I won't speak for anybody but myself, right? So we talk about this health span, right? And then what we don't tend to talk about, unless it's in the context of a professional athlete, is sort of like skill span. Mm. And it's something I'm trying to sort of socialize a bit, where it's how do we, you've worked so hard to get into this career, how do we keep you in the career and loving your choice for that career for as long as we can? And if it was, you know, a professional football player or a dancer or a musician, we're like all in, throw all the resources at it. You know, they're getting paid $20 million a year. Well, we might as well. It's a good business sense and investment, right? But now go back to my moral obligation piece. Right. Does the industry have a moral obligation to take care of individuals that are talented, that are providing care? And the answer is yes. Yeah. There's a moral obligation on an individual perspective to take care of yourself. And there's a moral obligation of the industry at large to provide for these things. You know, that we talk a about lot where, of sense. yeah, sorry. I know I'm rambling here a bit, but. No, no, I, I this is, I think it's it powerful because in many ways you're challenging the framing of the way this uh, idea of well-being often gets positioned. And and I struggle sometimes, you know, th there is that that individual system challenge, but also sometimes when it's even um, even when we get to the framing that says, okay, individual makes sense, it too often feels like a means to an end. 
right? Yeah. We need you to take care of yourself because you're important for patient care, as opposed to because you're a human being who deserves that period, who deserves to love your career, who deserves to make the most out of the skills and training that you uh, worked hard to establish, who deserves um, to do that in an environment that that uplifts you as opposed to sucks every um, ounce of energy out of you that it that it can, and that that is a partnership activity between you and the systems you work in, I think is is it is not the way we often hear it framed. So I appreciate that. Is like, is there a compassion reservoir that I don't know about that's like <laughs> running dry where we can't demonstrate the same amount of compassion for our patients as we do for our staff members? Like, no. don't they deserve that same? Like I said, it's not a, it's same with gratitude and forgiveness. It's an unlimited resource if we want it to be. Yeah. And what's interesting is, and this is why I'm sort of like focusing on the individual stuff, because I don't know how much faith, I have an unbelievable amount of faith in HSS and the new leadership, Dr. Brian Kelly, who has made wellness a priority at HSS and prior to him, Lou Shapiro, who did the same. Um, so I have faith here, but as we look at the entirety of the industry, all right, well, let's go over to shift to the military piece. This obligation to care for the soldier and uh, to provide room and education for self-care can easily be said it's a national security issue mm. because the uh, lethality of the force is critical to national security. And this goes to our CIA operatives, our, our, our Intel folk, our FBI, like it is a national security issue that these people perform at their best and get it right. That's a yeah. fact. Okay. Even then we don't invest what we should. Right. And we'll send billions and billions of dollars overseas, but we won't give every soldier, sailor, airman, marine a wearable. Should be part of the enlistment deal. You sign on, here you go, you're informed. We'll shift that to healthcare. If we're at a 10% loss, not saying we, but as an industry, if we're at an 8 to 10% loss of nurses at institutions across the nation, can we afford to not invest in these tangible things that let them know that they're seen and empower them mm -hmm. to care for themselves? Yeah, as long as I think the fear is that then some of that gets used for for Big Brother. So there's got to be, you know, the right culture, the right leadership, the right, you know, and you've you've mentioned that already at HSS that that's that's something you've you've got and you're working towards. So, yeah. uh, but I do want to shift gears for a second because you have put in a specific training program at HHS or HSS, sorry, um, to <laughs> to. Uh, to build these skills, to build awareness, to build understanding of the knowledge and the science and to build the skills. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like? And um, particularly, you know, for anyone who's looking at putting in place well-being resources, how you frame it in a way that has people um, benefiting most from it as opposed to potentially resisting it. Yeah. Um, so, the my master's program was something that um, we developed and wrote um, with uh, some outside consultation. And, um, you know, what I had found is while there was, you know, emphasis on certain things, like, you know, there's amazing works, uh, books out like Breathe and, um, you know, uh, Outlive uh, by Peter Atia. And um, there, there's a there's a body of knowledge out there for people that they can read about these things like the science of sleep and Matt Walker and all of these things, right? But there was no way that people were able to really access it where it was easily digestible, 
All right. So what I did is I took a look at this concept that I was sort of putting together um, called day span. Right. And it was how do we teach the habits that you can enact that generally nobody gets a vote on. All right. That yeah. they can implement throughout the course of their day. And it starts with some fundamental understandings of this concept of fight or flight. All right. I do believe that we have an education problem more than we have a wellness problem in the country. I think a lot of people are misinformed because there's so much nonsense out there. We could thank social media for that. You know, somebody's born with a genetically gifted 38 pack and all of a sudden they're an expert on body fat reduction. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> peer reviewed is good. So we did start there. Everything that we put in here uh, into our uh, Mind Masters program, which is a four-part, 30-minute curriculum, uh, everything that we put into that is you know, peer-reviewed multiple times. And we teach about this fight-or-flight concept, how to get out of it, and what's necessary to get out of it. And we start with um, everything from techniques and tactics that are simple as um, light discipline, right, or understanding the importance of light early in the morning, to uh, breath work to sleep hygiene, you know, we'll touch on nutrition, um, not so much in terms of the content because it's a much bigger subject, but also nutrition in terms of the necessity of hydration and the importance of when you eat relative to its impact on sleep and recovery and possibly the broader food choices. But, it, you know, there's a lot there. So we steer clear of uh, going into the specifics of that, but we do talk about the criticality of making room and how to put things like sleep hygiene, light discipline, how we um, integrate these things like breath work into our daily lives. And then there needs to be room for it. So you can put together the program and pay for the program and the coaching all you want. But generally speaking, if you're not meeting people where they are and allowing them to participate in the learning of these things at work, which is a moral obligation, and then creating the space for them to practice it at work, which I believe again is a moral obligation, then you're gonna be fighting a losing battle. All right. What does it mean to create the space for it, to practice it? What does that look like? Well, right. So I think what's interesting, and, and this is leadership across the country, which I generally think is terrible, right? And it's not anyone's fault that many people are bad leaders, all right? And we happen to have some extraordinary leadership at HSS, and it's such a, a focus of ours. But generally speaking, across all industries, and, this, and the military is not excluded from this, right? There is... Um, a lack of understanding what leadership is. It's not about charisma, right? It's not about motivating people to do their job and to squeeze the most out of them for their highest performance. It's also meeting them where they are in this space of like, how do they take care of themselves? Where does that moral obligation tie into there when it comes to leadership, right? So if you're not making room for things like breath work, even if you don't believe in breath work and you're wrong, <laughs> if you don't, let me be right. clear, Science, right. <laughs> like I think 50 years ago, you could have said like, oh, that's all woohoo nonsense. And you could have gotten away with it. All right. But you can't anymore. It's kind of <laughs> the same way I giggle. And this is a bit of a digression, but people talk about intermittent fasting and they're like, yeah, I fast for an eight hour window. Yeah. There's something else they call that. It's called sleeping. Like if right. you're sleeping for eight hours a night, which you probably should be, you're actually intermittent fasting as well. Um, but, uh, I think that if you're not making room for that, you know, there's sort of the same thing when I was emergency room nurse, when they were like, take your lunch, take your lunch, take your lunch, right. You work a 12 hour shift, you get your 30 minutes. Then you come back after 30 minutes, right. And you've got medications given that aren't charted yet. 
right? You've got patients where an IV is started that's an inappropriate size for whatever the, the malady is. You got blood work that may have been drawn that isn't sent or, and you come back to a, a you know, a, a storm. Yeah. Right. So how do leaders build that into the space where you can take your lunch without consequence? I mean, I found myself many times you would get penalized for too much overtime, but you would spend an hour charting afterwards because you were helping others take care of a critically ill patient. So you find yourself swiping out and then going back to your desk because mm. it wasn't worth the 20 or $30 to hear about it and continuing to chart after you were no longer getting paid for it. So as leaders, to answer your question a little bit more concisely, and we can tell by this podcast, concise is not my thing. <laughs> what we can say is that um, you have to make time for breath work. So if we talk about the context of an OR, can we not afford two minutes of breath work before first incision? Can we not afford two minutes at a huddle? Do we not have a room and a space for individuals to go into that is not nursing related, where they can go and just get a pause in, get a breath in? Can we create an environment that's not punitive when you come up to somebody and you say, I need a minute? And the next question isn't why? Right. Right. I don't know. I just got headbutted by a two year old. The mother's been terrible to me and I just need a minute. Can we have that space from leadership? And that's what it looks like. And it yeah. varies across all the different aspects of medicine. But we need as leaders to start making time for the education and the practice of these science proven techniques. I really appreciate that. And I think that that showcases um, and we, we do need to wrap shortly, but this idea that that while this is happening, while what you're teaching is a framework of uh, individual recovery, right? And individual optimization, it happens in a context of culture and leadership that, that teaches it, reinforces it, creates space for it, staffs appropriately or whatever that might be, right? So if you do take your lunch, you've got somebody who's not a peer that's having to pick up double, but perhaps a, a, you know, a floating, person or something that's that's going to carry that for you or whatever it might be but that that there are that even if we're talking about this individual well-being it exists at that self-level the team level and the organizational level and i could give you a tangible example right so one Perfect. of the things that we put out was uh, at hss our meetings are 25 and 50 minutes blocks Okay, it's pretty reasonable to leave a five minute if we know that on the administrative side, most people do back to back meetings or multiple meetings in a day. So to have five minutes to hydrate, grab a bite to eat or use the bathroom like an adult shouldn't be a, 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 a heavy lift. So the um, we did our best and, you know, institutionally, we set all our defaults for the meetings to go to 25 and 50 minutes. Somebody has to override it and people are adhering to it and we're getting outstanding feedback from that. What I would say is, what is the consequence if you have a leader that's high enough up on the food chain? And, and we haven't had this, but I'm as, a, as an anecdotal or as an example, you know, something fictitious here. What if we had a leader that was like, OK, but every Friday morning, we're going to knock all our meetings out in two, two hours. Right. What does that do then as a cascading effect for everyone in our charge? Then it becomes the culture of the institution isn't really that we do 25 and 50 minute meetings. We do right. 25 and 50 meetings, kind of. And I find right. that these wellness measures, generally speaking, are all or none propositions. Mm. They need to believe it. And if you have an individual lower on the on the chain that is scheduling a 25-minute meeting and looking over their shoulder and saying, like, do you mean it? Like, you really mean it? 
It's not going to be effective. And we could say yeah. that for breath work. We could say that for taking your vacation time. When are we going to start governing a little bit more stringently upon when people are accessible to mm. their quote unquote boss? Like, can we make all our communications after hours? And could we say like, hey, if we need something immediately on this, I'm going to call you, but stop checking your email before you go to bed. And we should be doing that, but it's yeah. not going to have any stickiness to it unless we have universal high level executive buy-in and leadership buy-in. I appreciate that. Anything else you want to add before we wrap up? This has been incredibly informative and, and we've covered a lot of ground and maybe there's, maybe there's a future episode where we dig into this. We'll see what kind of response we get, but anything you want to add to close? Yeah. And sort of just as a message to the listeners, um, we need to collaborate on this space to move the needle effectively. We don't need to just change the culture at one institution. We need to change mm. the culture nationally. And that's not going to happen without really deliberate sharing and, and um, collaboration. So I encourage anybody that's interested and wants to talk and discuss in more detail about these things and sharing strategies. Um, HSS is doing very well with it and we're learning in trial by error. I'm happy to share those wins and losses with everyone. And I hope others are willing to do the same. So if there was a message I could put out, um, we need to be more deliberate about how we work together in this space and uh, encourage everybody to do it, whether it's uh, with uh, me at HSS or anyone anywhere in the industry. And uh, lastly, I wanna thank you for uh, uh, giving this incredibly important topic a voice, a national voice, and we really appreciate your support of it. Well, thank you very much. That is why this podcast exists, is to promote that kind of sharing of ideas and best practices and also our broader uh, community around what's currently called the CEO Coalition. Stay tuned for a a name change coming shortly, but that will be broadening out as far and wide as we can make it. And I agree with you on that need for uh, team members deserve to be safe and well everywhere uh, because we ask them to deliver um, exceptional care everywhere and because they're human beings and everyone deserves to be well in their work. So thank you so much for sharing this message and for the work you're doing at HSS. Thank you and have a great day. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of Vocera, now part of Stryker. This is Liz Bohm, executive strategist at Stryker and host of the Caring Greatly podcast. Thank you for caring greatly.